You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, December 8th. I'm Portia Cook. And I'm Kira McKinley. And you're tuned into KCSU Fort Collins. Welcome to the last episode of the Rocky Mountain Review for the fall 2022 semester. Assistant News Director Kira and I will be back with more news at the start of spring semester on January 17th. On today's show, Kira McKinley goes over campus news with information on Colorado State University's presidential finalist. After that, Portia covers local news with information on a new grocery store coming to Fort Collins. Then I give you your daily dose of music, entertainment, and events news with the best video games of 2022. After that, you'll hear an interview with myself and Dr. Jacob Sands on lung cancer awareness. Then I'll cover environmental news today with updates on the eruption of the world's largest active volcano. After that, I go over national news with updates on Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. Then make sure to stay tuned for CSU Sports with you and Pert. And to conclude today's show, I will take a look at what Fort Collins has in store for the weather this week. The following RMR broadcast was pre-recorded on Wednesday, December 7th. With that, let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Kier McKinley reporting your campus news for December 6th. Currently, the World Cup is going on and 5 billion people all around the world will tune in at some point during the tournament. Some of those viewers are students here at Colorado State University. If you're a student here at Colorado State University and are looking for a place to watch the World Cup, the Lori Student Center is hosting fans at Ramskeller Monday through Friday at 12 o'clock to view some of the matches. Last Friday, the Colorado State University Board of Governors announced their presidential finalist, Amy Parsons. According to the Coloradoan, Parson is, quote, 48 and has spent 16 years working for the university in various roles, most recently as the executive vice chancellor of the CSU system, which includes the main campus in Fort Collins, as well as a campus in Pueblo, the online CSU Global University, and a new Spur campus in Denver, end quote. Parson is also a Colorado native and a CSU alum, according to the Coloradoan. According to a statement from CSU Source News, once the Board of Governors announces a finalist, there must be a 14-day waiting period before the finalist can enter any employment agreement and a start date can be made. If this waiting period holds up, it seems we should hear if Parson is officially named the next president of CSU on December 15th. In other campus news, in Colorado, the minimum wage is about $13 an hour, which is what some students at Colorado State University are being paid. But according to MIT, this isn't even close to the livable wage needed in Fort Collins. MIT stated that the livable wage in the city is about $18 an hour, which currently makes the minimum wage about $5 shy of a livable one. The city of Fort Collins will be installing a new minimum wage in the city of $15 an hour in January. This change will also go into effect at Colorado State University as well. The university housing and dining services will be increasing their pay rate to $15 an hour, which is $1.50 more than they were originally making. According to the Collegian, Jane Scott, the Residential Dining Services and Project and Programming Manager, said, quote, moving to $15 an hour benefits all of our student team members and has increased our retention. The increase helped residential dining services to hire new students and retain the talented individuals who are already employed with us, end quote. While the Collegian found that this change in wage is intended to help the university keep current employees and hire more employees, this wage increase will also hopefully help those working at the dining hall make a more livable wage as well. Thank you for listening to my campus news updates. Make sure to stay tuned for local news with Portia Cook.
I'm Portia Cook reporting your local news for Thursday, December 8th. In local news, the Old Town Fort Collins Kmart may finally get raised in January for a new grocery store. After six years of planning the demolition of the former Kmart store that sits at the intersection of South College Avenue and Drake Road could begin construction in January, clearing the way for a new and larger King Supers grocery store. Spokesperson Jerry Trowbridge told the Colorado in quote, we are looking forward to getting this project going and serving the community with a new store, end quote. Construction of the 123,000-square-foot store will begin in the spring with a tentative opening date in the summer of 2024. King Supers, who is owned by Kroger, has been planning the new and larger grocery store since 2016. Once demolition begins, the old Kmart and former Loaf and Jug building will be removed. The shops that housed the former Lark Burger will remain with Jiffy Lube on the corner of Drake Road and South College Avenue. Plans for the new grocery store include a drive through pharmacy, promenade shops on the west side of the building, pedestrian corridors throughout the site, and a garden-themed outdoor plaza on the south side. A new fuel station will be located on the east side of the store closer to College Avenue. In other news, due to rising operation costs, Gateway Natural Area Daily Entrance Passes will increase from $7 to $8 beginning January 1, 2023. Annual passes will not change and will remain $40. Daily parking passes are required for all vehicles, walk-ins, tubers, and boaters. According to the City of Fort Collins press release, the additional dollar fee will help support maintenance and operating costs while supporting planned improvements in the next few years. Gateway Natural Area, formerly Gateway Mountain Park, is the site of the city's oldest water filtration plant, where the North Fork of the Poudre River joins the main Poudre River. Only 15 miles from Fort Collins, you'll find hiking trails, the Poudre River, a designated lunch area for kayaks and canoes, fishing, picnic tables with grills, information kiosks, and a natural playground. Additional information on local natural areas can be found at fcgov.com slash naturalareas finder. In other news, a UK-based indoor farming tech company has selected Loveland, Colorado for its North American headquarters. According to North 40 News, the city of Loveland formally announced that Intelligent Growth Solutions, a Scotland-based agricultural infrastructure company supplying vertical farms to growers, has selected Loveland for its latest expansion. IGS Designs produces and maintains vertical farming technology that enables indoor growing anywhere, eliminates the need for pesticides or fungicides, and reduces water consumption by up to 95%. According to IGS, because no arable land is required, these systems can also be used to reduce the carbon footprint of food production by locating farms closer to the point of consumption or production. Opening a base of operations in Loveland will allow the company to better support North American customers, the company's fastest-growing market. The city of Loveland's economic development director, Kelly Jones, told North 40 News, quote, IGS technologies, mission, and people are a perfect fit for the ag tech ecosystem that continues to flourish across our region and in Loveland, end quote. The location for the headquarters has not yet been announced. I am Portia Cook, and that will do it for your music events and entertainment news. Up next, an interview with myself and Dr. Jacob Sands on lung cancer awareness. Big Al's Burgers and Dogs is a proud supporter of KCSU. Located on Mountain Avenue, just west of College in Old Town. 
Big Al's Burgers and Dogs features the 60-40 burger, classic burgers, hot dogs, veggie burgers, fries, and shakes. Now offering no-contact carryout, online ordering, curbside pickup, and delivery from Nosh. For more details, visit BigAlsBurgersAndDogs.com. And I'm back with your music events and entertainment news. If you're looking for things to do, you can find the most up-to-date events on the KCSU events calendar at kcsufm.com. We have a few events taking place this evening. On campus, we have the Colorado State University Band Concert Celestial at 7.30 p.m. in the Griffin Concert Hall at the UCA University Center for Arts. The symphonic band is conducted by Dr. James Taylor, who will be joined by Dr. Drew Leslie for a concert exploring the celestial phenomenon. Playing at the Aggie tonight is Kiva with special guests Waylo and Crispy. Kiva's blueprint for music includes an emotionally fueled and dramatic electronic music landscape of low frequencies, fierce beats, and live vocals. Tonight's show kicks off at 8 o'clock p.m. and tickets for the event can be found on the Aggie website. If you're sticking around Fort Collins, karaoke at the Emporium Sports Bar kicks off at 9 o'clock p.m. tonight. Karaoke with Mr. Wide Buck is a reoccurring event at the Emporium every Thursday night. As for this weekend, there's plenty of entertainment, live music, and events to attend. You can check out what's coming up next on the events calendar at kcsufm.com. In music news, a BTS member solo album is out and it is making a lot of noise. On Friday, December 2nd, music fans voted in a Billboard poll choosing BTS member RM's album Indigo as this week's favorite new music. Indigo beat out new music by Morgan Wallen, Louis Capaldi, Kelly Clarkson, Ariana Grande, Lato, and Glorilla. According to Billboard, Indigo recounts the stories and experiences of RM similar to a written diary. In entertainment news, whether you like Xbox or Nintendo Switch, these are the best video games of 2022, according to USA Today. Starting off in the category of best video games for kids, we have LEGO Star Wars, The Skywalker Saga, Nintendo Switch Sports, and Oli Oli World. Honorable mentions for the kids game include Nintendo's Pokemon Legends, Acreus, EA Sports, FIFA 23, and NHL 23, and... Konami's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Cowabunga Collection. Moving on to Best Video Games for Teens, we have Stray and Grounded. Honorable mentions for teen games include Ubisoft's Mario Plus Rabbids Spark of Hope, Devolver Digital's Return to Monkey Island, and Crows, 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 Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe. And finally, moving on to the top video game picks for adults, we have God of Ragnarok and Elden Ring. 
Honorable mentions for mature games include Activision's Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and Call of Duty Warzone 2 and Techland's Dying Light 2 Stay Human. I'm Portia Cook, and that will do it for your music events and entertainment news. Up next, an interview with myself and Dr. Jacob Sands on lung cancer awareness. Yeah, my name is Jacob Sands. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a volunteer spokesperson for the American Lung Association. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. So let's go ahead and jump right in. A little bit of the information that I've seen is lung cancer is the leading cause of death in the U.S. with about me one person dying in the U.S. every two and a half minutes. That's pretty extreme. Tell us how increasing lung cancer awareness helps increase lung cancer survival rates. The information is staggering. So about 357 people die every day from lung cancer. Lung cancer, I think it, it, it kills about one in four of cancer deaths are from lung cancer. So as you stated, it kills more people than breast, colon, and prostate combined. Um, it Unfortunately, a lot of people die from lung cancer. And this is in large part because it is not something that we know about until it has spread beyond the lungs. So stage four lung cancer is really a challenge to cure. Stage one lung cancer is far more curable. So the, the big effort is diagnosing it earlier, but in early stages, it, it's not really causing symptoms. Hence the real, the, the, the importance of lung screening as a way of detecting it in early stage. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends that people get uh, in what's considered high-risk population get um, their screening scan once a year. People qualify for lung screening without copay between the ages of 50 and 80, last cigarette within the last 15 years, and uh, 20-pack year smoking history. And people can go to calculate all of that out at savedbythescan.org. It's a site you can learn more about lung screening and also plug in your information, your loved one's information to really see who qualifies for lung screening. But early detection is really how we cure it. And this is why it's so important for people to be aware of this. Absolutely. Now, when you hear of lung cancer, you automatically, or even myself, I automatically associate that with, oh, you have to be a smoker or a previous smoker. Is that the case? And is that the one of the only ways to be more susceptible to lung cancer? Or can it be from something outside of smoking? Yeah, that's a common, it's a common misconception. And really, anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. So um, people do not have to have a smoking history to get a lung cancer diagnosis. That being said, cigarette smoking is really the highest uh, risk factor of, of causing lung cancer. So a smoking history drastically increases the likelihood of getting lung cancer, but anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. Absolutely. Um, now, let's also throw into the mix vaping. A lot of people will say, you know, vaping is not cigarette smoking. How does that correlate with being more susceptible to lung cancer? You know, the the uh, cause of lung cancer is something that often takes decades from the initiation of that toxin exposure. And so we won't really know that information about vaping and cancer probably for decades just because it hasn't been around long enough. We do know that there are uh, cases of damage to the lungs from vaping. And so there certainly are risks associated with vaping. As far as any cancer association, that's something that will likely take decades before we really have more information on. 
Okay. Now you said anyone is eligible to be screened for lung cancer, regardless of a, a previous smoker or not. Let's talk about that scan and that process and what that looks like. Well, people qualify between the ages of 50 and 80, their last cigarette within the last 15 years. And savedbythescan.org is where, where people can look at their information or their loved one's information a bit more on some of the specifics around smoking history and such. Any advice for those with a smoking history who may be afraid to receive the scan? Yeah, I think um, lung cancer is a scary diagnosis. And so it's kind of natural for people to be afraid of that diagnosis. And therefore, I hear, quote, not want to hear it. Um, But really, by everything that people are afraid of for lung cancer is often more thinking about that late stage diagnosis. By detecting it early, it can be cured. And so the earlier the detection, the more likely to be cured and the less to be afraid of. And really, it only takes going and laying on a a CAT scan machine. So it's laying on a table for two minutes and getting that CAT scan done. And with a two-minute scan, if a lung cancer is detected, it's more likely to be an early-stage cancer at a time when it can still be cured. And what does curing lung cancer look like maybe in those early stages if you're able to detect it that quick? Well, in many cases, it would be a surgery to remove that nodule. Um, if for whatever reason, surgery is is uh, a higher risk, in some cases, radiation just to that very focused area uh, in, in a stage one diagnosis, in an early stage diagnosis, it would be one of those procedures. In those cases, if it's really stage one and there's no lymph nodes and no spread, then that alone can be enough to cure people. And then they don't really need any further treatment. For those that fall into the criteria of a lung screening, how often should you be getting screenings done? At least once a year. So if the scans look good, you keep getting that scan once a year. And we know from some of the studies that have been done that screening once a year After that first year, if the first year looks good and you keep going, then the cancer won't have had an opportunity to grow for more than a year, basically. And in that time frame, it's far more likely that if a cancer develops, you're going to catch it when it's stage one. We know that with increasing numbers of years, the likelihood of catching it at stage one goes down the longer the time between scans. Now, in some cases, there is a small nodule and the doctor will say, gosh, there's a little nodule there. It's still lower likelihood but it could be a cancer. And so in some cases, you're getting a scan at three months or at six months to see if that grew. If there's a small nodule and it hasn't really changed over the course of months, then the likelihood of that being a cancer really drops quite a bit. And so sometimes it's just closer monitoring of a nodule. In other cases, you say, oh, that that grew a bit more and now we're going to uh, biopsy it or cut it out or do some other assessment. Now, for smokers or former smokers that are outside of the criteria of getting the lung cancer screening, where can they go or what should they do if they do have concerns about possible lung cancer? Well, everyone should talk to their doctor. And I'll highlight that anyone with symptoms needs a workup. A screening scan is for people who don't have any symptoms. A screening scan is for people who are not getting any kind of workup. And this is how we're then able to detect something that doesn't cause any symptoms. If people are having symptoms, that's a different thing, then they need to get a workup for that. There's a lot of work that we're doing around better defining people who qualify for lung screening. And recently, that was an update from the U.S. PSTF, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. They dropped the starting age from 55 to 50. 
They dropped the number of pack years from 30 to 20. And there are further adjustments that will be made going forward. And a lot of our efforts are really how to better define that high risk group and how to uh, better increase the number of people that we can diagnose early stage when it can be cured. And therefore, obviously, reducing the number of people who, who come in with a late stage diagnosis, a stage four diagnosis. As a medical oncologist, I'm seeing people who come in with cancer that has already spread in many cases, and now I'm treating them and how to knock back the cancer, how to protect and prolong their quality of life. What I would love is for us to catch everybody at an early stage where they don't need any treatments from me. And this is what lung screening offers. Now, I do think that with time, we'll better define more and more people that might get that screening scan. And that's ongoing effort. Right now, it's age 50 to 80, last cigarette within the last 15 years, and, and 20 pack year smoking history. And again, people can look at that at savedbythescan.org. Why is the scan for 50 and above? Because I know someone for myself, for example, I'm 32. However, I started smoking at 12 and I just quit smoking two years ago. That's a little concerning to me now. I would like to get scanned sooner than 50. Um, why is that age for the uh, the scan that that beginning age 50 years old? Well, the studies that have been done so far are in these populations. And so this was the, the, the decrease in age from 55 to 50 was based upon new data that came out from another study that included a younger population. The, the likelihood of developing a cancer really goes up as you get uh, higher in those in, in that age. The diagnosis of lung cancer in, in 30s absolutely happens, but it is it's far less common. And so better defining the individuals that are at high risk of developing a lung cancer, there's further refinement to do, and that is ongoing research to, to better do that. Right now, the data that we have really shows clear benefit at a, starting at age 50. Understood. Now, to your knowledge, is there a demographic of people who are more susceptible to lung cancer even outside of smoking? Well, there are other risk factors as well. And so uh, things like radon exposure, um, this is uh, a gas that is not is colorless. Uh, it's not you can't smell it. Um, typically in basements is would be the more common place. And there are different areas in the country that have higher radon levels. And so uh, people can go to their state websites to look up uh, radon in their areas and in many cases get kits for radon testing. So that's another one to be aware of as far as, as a risk factor. There certainly are um, uh, other things that, that put people at risk. As far as populations, we do see differences in the risk of dying from lung cancer within different populations. And uh, particularly when looking at groups, uh, African-American men are at higher risk of dying from lung cancer at a lower smoking history. And that decreased recently from 30 pack years to 20 pack years and from 55 to 50 helps reduce some of that disparity in, in young African-American men qualifying for lung screening and therefore being able to catch that diagnosis early. There is further refining to do for sure. And we made a really nice step in reducing disparities through that recent update. And there's certainly more work to do. Definitely. Now, let's quickly talk about the symptoms of lung cancer, especially those early on symptoms. Yeah, so symptoms, just to highlight, in early stage diagnosis, or, or at the time of early stage, most patients don't have symptoms. And so this is where it becomes really hard to detect it early stage. Um, 
many people come in and say, they say to me, when, when the cancer has spread, they say, really, I feel completely fine. Are you, what is happening? They, and it seems like that's really out of the ordinary. Unfortunately, that's very common is that lung cancer develops and it spreads without any symptoms developing at all. And so people don't get that heads up on going and getting checked out. Hence the importance of getting a screening scan without symptoms. But an ongoing cough, coughing up blood is a particularly concerning thing. Um, and, you know, any kind of breathing issues. Um, that being said, really, um, that's more commonly from other types of things. And so just having a cough, uh, you know, I think everybody has a cough at some point, and, and in many cases, that's not from lung cancer, which is what makes it hard. And when you have people with a significant smoking history, a cough is often something that they um, intermittently experience anyway. And so it, it's hard to know. And, and so getting that screening scan at a time when they're not having symptoms is really the opportunity of diagnosing it when it's early stage and can be cured. Definitely. Now, is there anything else that you would like the public to know um, about the topic in general for lung cancer awareness? Well, for people who have a lung cancer diagnosis, particularly a non-small cell lung cancer, a non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer or adenocarcinoma, Getting DNA testing of the cancer is a really important thing to, to make sure that that's done. For everybody without a lung cancer diagnosis, if you qualify for lung screening, this is the opportunity at catching it early if it happens. Of course, we don't want anyone to get lung cancer, but if you get it, I want it to be caught early when it can be cured. And going to savedbythescan.org is where you can learn more, see if you qualify, if your loved ones qualify. And if so, go to your doctor and say, hey, I know I qualify for lung screening. This is my chance at cure if I get it. So I really want to make sure I have that scan done. This was wonderful information. And I am very excited to get this information out there to the public, hopefully spread some awareness and some education, get some people to that website so we can start taking care of ourselves and making sure we're catching things early on. I do think that's important. Yeah, thanks for getting awareness about lung screening out there. This is really important. Did a great job asking the questions. I appreciate it. Perfect. No, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you. Perfect. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. up i'm dj mads tune in from 5 to 7 p.m tonight to hear what theme i've got in store for you in environmental news the world's largest volcano erupted in hawaii last week now the lava from the eruption is just two miles away from one of hawaii's main highways 
Hawaii's National Guard has now been deployed due to the lava's proximity to the highway. Although officials say at this moment in time, the lava is not threatening to any surrounding communities. The lava's pace is not steady, so it's hard to predict when and if it will hit the highway or affect other parts of the island. At this moment in time, though, the lava is moving approximately at a 21 to 22 yard per hour speed. Information from this story comes from CNN. In other environmental news, one of the Biden administration's goals is to have offshore wind turbines off every coast in the United States. Recently, they have taken a step closer towards accomplishing this goal. Wind turbine production started this past week for wind turbines that will be placed off the California coastline. This new set of turbines could power up to 1.5 million homes in the U.S. J.C. Sandberg, the interim CEO of the American Clean Power Association, said, quote, It puts California on a path to be a global hub for offshore wind technology, end quote. Information from this story comes from Now This Earth News. Meat and dairy products account for about 75% of our carbon footprint here in the United States. One major coffee chain has now made oat milk their default milk in their beverages due to the fact that it will help reduce their carbon footprint, but they also believe that this switch will help their coffee taste better as well. Not only is oat milk more environmentally friendly, but in addition to this, oat milk and more plant-based diets are healthier for people no matter how old they are as well. Information from this story comes from CNN. Thank you for listening to my environmental news updates. Make sure to stay tuned because next up, I'll be back with your national news. Yo, this is G-Love and you're on 90.5. national news, yesterday, December 7th, was Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day. 81 years ago, the Imperial Japanese Navy and Air Services attacked an American naval base in Honolulu, Hawaii. 2,403 Americans were killed in this attack, while more than 1,100 were injured. The day after this attack, the United States government declared war with Japan, which then entered the U.S. into World War II. To honor those lost in this attack, American flags throughout the U.S. were flown at half-past yesterday. Information from this story comes from USA Today. In other national news, Hertz, a car rental company, will now have to pay customers $168 million after falsely accusing some of their customers of stealing their rental cars. The Washington Post said some customers that received these false allegations served weeks or months in jail due to these allegations. Hertz said that they had 364 claims of stolen vehicles and that 95% of those claims were false, according to the Washington Post. Raphael Warnock, a Georgia senator candidate, has been officially called as a winning candidate. He is a Democratic candidate from Georgia who has been serving in the Senate since 2021. Warnock was running against controversial candidate Herschel Walker. This is Warnock's second runoff win that has flipped the Senate, according to NPR. The Democrats now control the Senate 51-49, to with Vice President Harris breaking the even split. 
The Tampa police chief resigned after a video came out of her flashing her badge at an officer who pulled her and her husband over. The former police chief's husband was driving a golf cart while she was in the passenger seat. When a police officer pulled them over at a traffic stop, she pulled out her badge and then could be heard in the video saying, quote, I'm the police chief of Tampa. I'm hoping you'll let us go tonight, end quote. Information from this story comes from ABC News. If you're looking to do some impromptu karaoke, it may be hard to find a YouTube video for songs that you want to listen to, but soon it's about to get a lot easier. Wired said that Apple Music will be adding a karaoke feature to their app this month. Users will be able to change the song they want to listen to to a lyric-free sing-along song. Apple is providing the new service by using machine intelligence and proprietary processing technology, according to Wired. Thank you for listening to my national news updates. Now an episode of the podcast, Mental Health Musings, Body Politics, Well-Being at Any Size. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Mental Health Musings. It's been a while. It's great to be back. I'm Stephanie Z, she, her, hers, and I am the coordinator of well-being over in the Health Network. I'm really excited for today's topic. Our title of the session is Body Politics, Well-Being at Any Size. We have some awesome guests with us, but first, I'd like to turn it over to my amazing co-host, Adam John. Hi, everybody. My name is Adam John Aparisi. Pronouns are he, him, his. I'm the coordinator for diversity and outreach services at CSU Counseling Services, as well as a licensed therapist. So we have two wonderful guests with us today. Dr. Helen Bowden, coordinator of eating disorder services and a senior staff psychologist at CSU Counseling Services, as well as Dr. Adam Sargent, (laughs) um, who is assistant director for group services and a senior staff psychologist in counseling services at CSU. Welcome, y'all. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, wonderful introduction. Appreciate it. Excited to be here. Mm-hmm. And my pronouns are she, hers. Yeah, and I use he, him pronouns. Perfect. So as Stephanie said, today's topic is body politics, well-being at any size. So we're going to jump right into questions. So I wonder if you two could tell us a little bit about your interest in this topic and how does it play out in your work at CSU and the Health Network? Yeah, I've been interested in this topic for a really long time. When I was growing up, I was definitely what we would call back then gender nonconforming. And so it really got me interested in the portrayal of gender in the media. And that got me super interested in body politics and eating disorders. And right now, it's a huge part of my work since I coordinate eating disorder services and lead the eating disorder treatment team. And I also see lots of clients with eating disorders as well as negative body image, which is sadly prevalent. Yeah, and for me, I actually I like to joke that I was born fat. And so I was sort of born into the identity and born into the political world that is and that exists. So for me, it was a real personal journey that just started off with the shape and size of my body that got me invited into this work, both personally and professionally. I'm so excited because this has been something that I know I have struggled with. And I actually got into a fight with my mom and brother yesterday. We're talking about A1C and stuff like that. And I was like, you know what? I don't really want to talk about it anymore. And I also know with fall break coming up and the winter holiday, that tends to be time when folks body size can change or it can be commented on mm-hmm. right when you sure. get home so so question for you all is how can body image affect our self-worth or idea of who we are in the world 
I know for me personally, it's one of the defining characteristics and features that really shaped who I am as a person. It's not possible to see me and not notice my size. And I think that society's got such a strong belief set and such a strong message, even from a really young age, about what that means in terms of your worth, in terms of what that means of where you fit in and sort of the order of things in society. So it's something that was, like I said, really unavoidable for me. And it was a real defining feature, kind of like a core primary identity for me. So there was no ignoring it in my own psychology, in my own upbringing, in my own sort of understanding of who I was and how the world sees me. All the way back from being a really little kid, everybody made really sure that I knew that about myself. It was reflected back at me. So in terms of how that influences self-concept, I mean, I think that that's something that for most folks of size, they have to reckon with really early on. And it's typically not a positive journey. Normally, it's one of uh, shame can lead to more introversion, certainly, where people don't get to express themselves maybe as loud or as proud as they would want to be as a human being in this world, um, just because the early messages, I think, really shape how we're seen and who we are. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I appreciate you sharing that story. You know, I think, unfortunately, we have, we grow up with a lot of societal conditions of worth. And a lot of those are, I call them the big three, appearance, people pleasing and performance. And there's definitely obviously some gender intersectionalities and racial ethnic so, so intersectionalities that impact that. But right now we're in society, which is steeped in fat phobia. We grow up believing that we can only be worthy if we look this particular way, which is you know, thin and for men more muscular. And there's not a lot of portrayal of any type of body image with trans and genderqueer folks either. And so what I've noticed a lot is that because so much emphasis is placed on body image while growing up, we go with that feeling of shame that you were talking about, Adam, that sense that I am not worthy if and feeling like I have to prove and earn my right to exist even, which really comes up sadly in a lot of medical settings, because it's one of those sayings, especially connected to BMI where it's very moralized. You know, they use this number that was never meant to be used in this way at all to tell someone if they're healthy or quote unhealthy and they feel like they have the right to lecture people and to tell them you need to change your body to be okay. Helen, can you explain what BMI is? Well, BMI, Body Mass Index, was actually developed not by a medical person, but by a mathematician. And he had the belief that the median or the average of a population is the most desired number. And so it was it was originally based, he took measurements of French and Scottish white folks, and that's what he used to base this formula. Hmm. And then it was later used for a terrible purposes like eugenics and forced sterilization. I mean, just all kinds of horrible things when it was never meant <laughs> to be anything other than a mathematical exercise. Thank you for explaining that. You know, Adam, in our prep for this conversation, you've talked about using fat as a word. Mm -hmm. Can you um, speak more to this topic of using fat as a word? Yeah, I've definitely evolved in this stance over time. It's not necessarily where I started, but it's definitely where I stand firmly today that I like to refer to myself as fat. And that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. And I get questions about it sometimes of, is that healthy? Is that okay? Is that ideal? And I think a lot of times when we think about identity of how do we refer to mm -hmm. ourselves, there should be personal agency and choice behind that. So mm -hmm. I, when I look in the mirror, I see fat. I feel fat. I feel like everything about me sort of fits into that category of what that definition 
definition is in societally, we say that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know that I personally agree with that, right? There's been lots of social phenomenons where people work towards taking words back, reclaiming sorts of words or identities or things that might be special or important to them. And I think this would parallel with a lot of those movements. So, for example, I'll hang out with a family friend and a little kid, somebody who's too little to know anything about mm -hmm. politics might look at me and go, you're fat. This happened to me not too long ago. And, of course, the immediate reaction out of the parents is shame and embarrassment, right? They think that that's a bad thing or that mm -hmm. that's going to hurt my feelings. That's true only within a societal context right. because right. of what society has said that word means. What I would love to have happened in this scenario rather than that kid being in trouble or shamed for saying that is to say, yeah, I am fat. I am. You're short. I'm tall. Like, there's mm -hmm. lots of descriptors of me and the only reason it holds any sort of weight no pun intended is because of what <laughs> society has said and so i kind of want to reclaim that of there's not this continuum another thing that i hear a lot of times is you're not fat you're beautiful and i think so, that can mm -hmm. that can be the same thing those aren't opposing ends of a continuum you can be fat and beautiful at the same time so I think part of the ownership of that term for me is about genuineness. Again, no pun intended, but fat can be an elephant in the room sometimes. Of You don't name it, you don't talk about it, because we don't know how to talk about it. We're not mm -hmm. taught that it's kind of an okay thing for there to be difference. We're not taught really right. how to talk about differences in the room. So it feels powerful for me to sort of be able to name it, label it, own it, share it. That being said, it's not a term that I apply to other people unless it's what suits them and what mm -hmm. fits for them. Some people like to be referred to as a person of size. Mm -hmm. I haven't met a whole lot of people that like being referred to as obese, for example, that's a word that gets thrown around in the medical community, mm -hmm. but I have yet to meet people who say that's how I identify. But if inside of you, you get very confused of like, what am I supposed to do with this? What do they want to be known as? What do they want to be referred to as? That's a common thing that I hear people say when they're confused about identity labels. Everybody's different. They aren't a group of people get together and vote on things like this. Everybody <laughs> might have a personal journey and a personal relationship with it. And so I think the best thing you can do is ask yeah. um, what honors you like who you refer to yourself as. And I can tell you for me personally, the thing that I feel the least comfortable with is when somebody beats around the bush or dances around it or just doesn't ask directly. The more comfort somebody shows with mm -hmm. their directness with me makes me feel more safe and secure and comfortable to dialogue with that topic with them. I think it's so hard because what you were talking about is the only reason why the family reacts that way and like the guilt and shame is because we have had it drilled into our head because we are in a flamingly fat public society that fat is bad. Even though we all have fat in our bodies, we're all different, but we find all these ways to judge the container of people, say this is bad, this is fat, this is unhealthy. And it's so invalidating of who people are. And I remember when I was doing my PRAC experience, when my coworkers there got a birthday card and it had on the cover a fairy and she was a woman of size and the kid goes oh she can't be a fairy and I'm like well why not he goes because she's fat and this kid was five years old mm. and already the kid was like fat is bad and you can't be fun things and you can't be this or that which then leads to folks growing up with so much internalized shame and then they go into different spaces and they have that tiptoeing around and they have comments or it's not commented on and then they get into a medical office for something completely different and they get the talk the talk about weight if you're not in the quote acceptable range and there's so much showing that it's not weight it is actually those very experiences of weight bias and being stigmatized and shame that affects health more that affects stress that affects obviously the way you feel about yourself because if you get these constant messages of rejection, you're not good enough, you need to change and lots of other way more negative words. It's like, how does a kid growing up with that who happens to be fat feel good about himself? 
first of all, thank you for sharing that, Adam. And second, I feel super valid about that the BMI is crap because growing up, always having my number be in the morbidly obese category and having people like pull me aside. I remember one time I took aerobics in high school and it was very clear my number was like not where I didn't want it to be. And the instructor pulled me aside and said, if you want, we can design a special nutrition diet for you. And I just felt so ashamed because it was just me being pulled aside. And I was like, I bust my butt working out in aerobics. Like I'm always covered in sweat. And so you just like, what, you're not good enough. And I love what you said about when someone states the fact that like, I'm fat. And I was like, no, you're pretty. I didn't say I was ugly. I just said I was fat. Like, right. But that's an automatic response. Right. Or if someone comments like, yeah, I'm pretty big. It's like, what do you say to that? Are you supposed to be like, no, 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 no. Like you're beautiful no matter what. Right. And realizing that it is just a statement of fact. And you started mentioning fat phobia, Helen. I'd love for you to talk more about that because I know I struggle with internalized fat phobia and having, even in dating, having people comment, I love your tummy. And I'm like, do you really mean that? And I'm super ashamed. Let me cover it up. Don't look at it. But it's there. It exists. It's a container. Also, what you're saying about a five-year-old, I have like nieces and nephews and parents don't mean to, but the way they even comment about food, they don't say anything about fat or size, but the way they say like, this is healthy, this mm -hmm. isn't, and equating them that not healthy eating equals your fat. Like there's just so much of that. So uh, yeah, if you can just talk to us about the origins of fat phobia, um, maybe just even how it looked, internalized fat phobia, all that stuff. It's ironic in the, in the sense that only actually until just a few years ago, that I found out the true origins of fat phobia. And I've been studying body image and eating disorders my whole life. And the reason why I didn't know the origins of fat phobia is the reason why we don't know a lot of things because history got whitewashed. And so I found out that the origins of fat phobia were actually steeped in the slave trade era. And it was first applied for white folks to try to feel more superior because they looked at brown and black bodies and were like, I don't want to be like that because that is all the negatives they said it was. And then that's when we started to see the first diet. And it was to make the body smaller and to make it look different from this really exaggerated view they had of folks of color. And backdrop always fill in patriarchy and classism and like everything behind that. And so there's such intersectionality now between, you know, when fat folks come in, especially you just add more marginalized identities if they're fat folks of color, then they get even more negatively treated. And there's so much research. It's sad. I remember one number I read in a book when I was in college from Body Wars and it made me so sad. It said, I think it was teenagers, they polled 50% of them said they'd rather be run over by a truck than be fat. Like, what are we talking about? Even healthcare providers, I've been trying to have this talk within health network because medical providers, they grow up being taught the same whitewash curriculum and they don't question it. And so I remember having this conversation with some medical providers about health at every size and getting a lot of resistance. And it's because there's these guidelines that said, if your BMI is within this range, you need to ask them about their weight every visit. And I'm like, that's the very thing that causes shame. And that's going to make somebody avoid it. That's the worst possible thing that you can do because that is not the thing that tells you whether someone is, quote, healthy or valid or valuable or anything else. Even with folks that I work with now, we just do not get anything different. Everything is steeped in fat phobia. The medical stuff we learned, the psychology stuff, we didn't learn about this either. Right. Are we making different recommendations based on what container is someone coming in with? I wonder too, you know, as many of our students are going home for fall break or winter break or whenever they're listening to this, it might be summer break. What are some tips you have for listeners who struggle with holding boundaries with family or friends around their body size? 
when I talk with clients, I kind of have two categories. I have the boundary and I have the buffering. It really depends on who the family members are and if they're reasonable or if they're toxic, you know, like, and so if somebody has a family that's at least semi-reasonable, they can more directly set the boundary. Whether it's their family makes a comment about, oh, going back for seconds or, oh, are you sure you're hungry or something about the body or like, oh, have a little meat on you to be able to say a little more directly. I'd really appreciate it if you didn't make those comments because they make me feel bad. Or you can use humor, sometimes shifting the conversation that way. It really just depends. And also I would tell folks if their family is reasonable to maybe ahead of time talk with them and be like, I really appreciate it if while I'm there, we don't talk about what I'm eating, my weight, anything like that. Now, if they're less reasonable, we go more to buffering, which could be things like changing the topic. It could be things like, what are some exit strategies? Using the bathroom or going this, or I have things to work on, schoolwork. That's always a good one. So you can remove yourself from that situation and having someone who can support you if you have that person in your life that you can text about it or call about it and process that because it's really challenging when family members, especially when you have all this history with them are, are saying these things around you that are so incredibly triggering. It ends up making nobody feel good. Absolutely. I think for me, in my own sort of treatment and interacting with my family and engaging with people around my own body and my own life, one of the things that's been missed that I love and value, and it could be personal to me, but for anybody who's listening that struggles with this, I want to say some of these things out loud in case it's useful for you too. Just to know that you're not alone and to sort of validate that we live in a pretty toxic culture yeah. around this stuff. This strategy, tips or tricks has to come alongside with validation that it's not going to fix right. the problem. We live in a fat phobic culture and my guess, not that I'm hopeless about the subject, because I do think as a society we slowly improve over time, but my guess is that's not going to not be true in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So throughout my lifetime, I'm probably going to have to exist in a fat body, in a fat phobic world and sort of validate that and sit with some of that reality that that is sad. Mm -hmm. That should make me angry. That should make me feel bad. That is wrong. I love starting there first. And I don't know that that makes me feel good, but it makes me feel less crazy or less weird or less alone or something like that we can sort of stay attached and tethered to one another that you know we live in a community where this stuff is hard on us and if we acknowledge how wrong this is and how not okay this is and how pervasive this is and how this is likely to stay true in our lifetimes it gives us like this platform or this foundation to sort of love ourselves and love each other and sort of recognize reality in a way that's a little less kind of crazy making or like mm. makes us feel less invalidating of our own experience because there's plenty of families that will not change and will right. not respect these boundaries just like Helen's saying like you got to analyze like what sort of family is yours you might be coming from one a group that's not going to change or one that's really reasonable or respectful another thing that can feel really toxic is maybe nobody comments on your body but they maybe they comment on yours or an experience I've had I've mm -hmm. been all different shapes and sizes in my life people can be so excited and so complimentary if your weight changes and it yeah. decreases but then that silence that comes when it increases is so much mm -hmm. louder and so much more painful. And so I know there's lots of experiences that are out there when it comes to like how you might engage with family. The other thing that happens is maybe nobody says anything to you directly, but they talk about their own body or their own experience in a way that feels negative or impacting to you. And people struggle to hear that feedback as well. So I love the idea of having your people reach mm -hmm. out to people, have support, especially if you got somebody in your life that gets it. You all know who gets it and who doesn't <laughs> sort of reaching out to them 
come and staying connected, especially if you feel isolated on this subject. And I love what Helen says about setting limits and boundaries. Uh, I think that that works really important too. Mm. Wow, that silence. When we get reinforced and we don't. I remember when I was at my highest weight, my mom stopped telling me I looked good when I dressed up. So I would dress up, have my mommy ready to go out, and it was crickets. Whereas when I'm in a smaller body, it was like, oh, you look so good. And like, that's just as painful. Absolutely. Hearing people talk badly about your own bodies growing up totally sets you up. Be like, oh, it's normal to think badly about your body. It's normal, you know, to have this kind of talk and just really contributes to that whole fat phobia and that whole idea that you're not worthy unless your container looks like this. And I'm with you 100%. It's such a long journey and hard work to get to that place where you can feel like I am valuable. I am worthy. I am good no matter what. And that, that's a long way. Sometimes for people, depending on growing up in trauma, depending on what people have said, because that etches it in so deeply. And, you know, that journey is so worthy, though, towards at least self-acceptance, hopefully self-love. And I love what Sonia Renee Taylor says about that. It's just really stepping into your authentic self and claiming it and, you know, being able to be like, I'm okay, even when people around me are telling me I'm not okay. And that is so hard. I love her. And I love that she talks about how the body's not an apology. Right. And I think about, I follow some Instagram profiles that just show essentially like really awful rejections people receive on online dating. And there are some that say like when the person has turned them down, I, I perceive to be female identified and the male identified. The male identified goes, well, you're lucky I talked to you, you're fat, right? So it's like, it's this idea that like you're fat, so therefore you're not allowed to be happy or there's a thing on Snapchat, it's called like love don't judge and mm -hmm. it has these pairings of people and, and then they're usually very educational like I'm six feet, you know, my partner's like four feet and people look at us, whatever. But there's some where it's like, my partner is like 300 pounds and we get all this comment. It's like, you don't deserve that. And I just think that's so terrible. And I love the buffering boundary because when you were saying all those examples, Helen, I was like, did you come to my house? <laughs> are, you, are you a fly on my wall? But like, that's how it was growing up. And even yesterday, that conversation I mentioned earlier about talking about like A1C and lab results and stuff, brother called me to follow up just to check in. I said, listen, I know you and your wife are, you know, you want to do this. And I respect that. I would just ask if you could just not talk about counting calories, if you could not be like, oh, I already ate 500. And you look at bag of chips or mm. something, because in my head, I'm like, then don't eat it. Like, you know, don't eat and be guilty. I was like, do it away from me. I just don't need that. So I've just made that pretty clear boundary. Good but, for you. So anyway, I'm just saying sharing that to you all because that's mm. something that's probably going to happen. But oh my God, we could talk forever. <laughs> totally. And unfortunately, we are close to our time. So I would just ask for the two of you, if you all have any final thoughts on today's topic that you'd want to leave our listeners to maybe wanting more resources, etc. I think one final thing I'd like to say, and not that this soaks in instantly, and I am going to steal from Sonia Renee Taylor, is your body is not an apology. You do not have to make up anything to anyone else. You don't have to earn love or food or oxygen. You don't need to prove yourself by bending over backward for people or doing all this extra in relationships to justify that you're worthy of one because you were born worthy and you are worthy for exactly who you are right now. 
Yeah, the last thing I'll say, I want to speak to shame. I do a lot of thinking and researching around shame as a psychologist. And then shame is such a sort of interwoven Mm -hmm. variable that comes along with fatness. A lot of people that we talk to as counselors come in using a lot of shame, thinking that it might motivate them or benefit them. And so something that we're really used to talking about a lot in the therapy room is that shame actually is a demotivating variable. So if you listen to your inner dialogue and your inner talk when it comes to how you talk about your body or how you think about your body or how you feel about your body, you might be really afraid to let go of shaming yourself, hating yourself, being mad at yourself, judging yourself, like all of these sorts of things. Research is super clear. That actually only harms us and adds more pressure on us that actually takes away our resources to do things that otherwise would be healthy for us or make us happier or contribute to health and happiness. So anyway, think about that in terms of how you talk to yourself, how you think about yourself, how you look at yourself, what tools you're using in your own toolkit. I'm so glad you brought that up because I a thousand percent agree. Shame is the most toxic emotion that we can have. And it's like pretty much every client we ever see is at the root of everything. And it's so insidious. And so with that, how we talk to ourselves, the language we use with ourselves, just even pay attention to how often you're using the word should with yourself. Even just try to change that to could. Watch how often you're using always or never or just things that if you said out loud would be abusive towards someone else. Even just being more mindful of that and trying to catch it and edit it. Because I feel like when we grow up, so many other people are writing our stories for us. Society, our parents, fat phobia, you fill in the blank. And that's how we learn beginning who we are. And like now we're with this massive manuscript that we have to edit, whether it's a word at a time or a sentence at a time, so we can yank back that pen and finally write our own stories and the chapters ahead. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Helen Bowden and Dr. Adam Sargent for the conversation today and my wonderful co-host, Stephanie Z. Always a pleasure. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks again for listening today and keep an eye out on Spotify for more episodes as well as a survey that we have in the show notes. Thanks again, y'all. Bye. Bye. Mom, I'm really hungry. I just want some chicken nuggets. All right, sweetie. Um, I'll call over the waiter. Uh, waiter? Waiter? Oh, 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 sorry, sorry. Yes, how, how can I help you? Um, I'm not sure what we really want to order yet. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, well, what we do have as a special right now is the KCSU app. Ooh, an appetizer. What's in it? It's actually an app for a radio station where you can listen to all of your favorite shows and podcasts and more. Oh, wow. That sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to help your hunger or anything, but it is going to hook you up with some cool tunes. So. Ooh, I'll download that app right now. <gasps> Wait a minute. Do I know you? Dad? <gasps> uh, 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 download the KCSU app today. I'm Ewan Burt, and welcome to this week's RMR Sports Update. This week, the Rams have three teams competing. The first of those is the men's basketball team. There's a record of 6-3 and three this season. After beating Loyola Marymount and losing to Northern Colorado last week, the team will be heading to Boulder for the big rivalry game later this week and over the weekend. They will be hosting Peru State. Up next is women's basketball. It was 5-3 with a loss to Northern Colorado and a win against Western Michigan last week. The team is looking forward to hosting DU early this week before San Francisco is in town for a game over the weekend. Up next is track and field. After having one player finish in the top five and four players finish in the top ten at the Air Force Holiday Open, the track and field teams will be heading to Colorado Springs at the end of the week for the UCCS Colo Running Company Invitational. 
the teams won't have any activity after this until the middle of January. I'm Ewan Part. This has been your sports update of the week. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Portia Cook with your Fort Collins weather forecast for today, Thursday, December 8th. Today was cloudy and cool with a high of 47 degrees. Tonight, you can expect temperatures to continue to drop with a high of 22 and winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Friday is sticking around with those cooler temperatures and cloudy skies with a high of 42. Saturday continues with cloudy skies and temperatures in the low 40s. As for Sunday, temps jump up just a bit with a high of 50. For more Fort Collins weather, you can tune into the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review at the start of spring semester on January 17th, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Portia Cook with your KCSU weather report. Information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damian Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Portia. And I'd like to thank you, Kira. And finally, we couldn't do this without you. Dear listener, thank you. If you missed any part of today's show, you can find the RMR podcast on kcsufm.com under news or podcast. You can also find us on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcast by searching KCSU News. And with that, we'll see you next time.